All right. Uh, a word quick of introduction. Um, I am a practicing attorney, trial lawyer, litigation-oriented uh, uh, attorney in Santa Barbara. I practiced about 25 years at the same firm at Price Postel and Parma in Santa Barbara. If you ever need to refer something, feel free. Uh, I'll refer my things to you if you come up to me afterwards. They're all the matters we have in Alabama, you never know. Uh, it's a general uh, practice, full-service firm. Um, and our big claim to fame is we're the oldest continuous partnership west of the Mississippi. So to us, that's a big deal, 1852. So we actually have some history in Santa Barbara uh, other than the mission. So and our firm has been around for uh, an awful long time. So my practice generally is uh, all kinds of litigation and trial work, everything from defending people that have had horses that have been allegedly doped for the Kentucky Derby that are based in Santa Barbara and Santa Inez Valley to defending lawyers, my favorite people, uh, to other kinds of general litigation. So that's me and my background. Um, so when I talk about the defense of the faith tonight, uh, I speak from where you are. Um, I'm taking time off my practice to do this. This isn't anything special. I'm not a trained a licensed clergyman, uh, became interested in the defense of the faith because I got around lawyers who are also theologically trained. Uh, but uh, I'm just like you in terms of the things that I'll recommend that we read in order to equip ourselves to deal with objections to the faith tonight or things that I have read that people have shown me uh, could be helpful in the defense of the faith. A couple of things to mention before we get going. One is you've seen the brochure, perhaps, of the International Academy of Apologetics. Um, we're full this year, but uh, next year we take 20 people each year. The courses are all in English, so you don't have to worry about being assaulted in French. Um, we keep uh, that contact to enjoying the uh, culinary delights of France, uh, the wine, and other uh, issues like that in France. Uh, so you'll have a very good time. We get people from all kinds of backgrounds. Their common interest is in the defense of the faith. And we generally have people from all across the board. Um, and we can, uh, if you have questions about that, happy to talk with you about it uh, after we're, we're done. Um, what I'm talking about tonight is a lawyer's case for Christianity. And the first issue that we want to address is why lawyer's case? What, what's so special about lawyers and the defense of the Christian faith? I mean, can it be veterinarians and the defense of the Christian faith? Or gardeners and the defense of the faith? What is it in particular that connects the law or lawyers to the defense of the Christian faith? First thing to note is that lawyers have a very distinguished long history in the defense of Christian truth claims. You go back to the second century, Tertullian, of course Paul himself, the Apostle Paul, was legally trained by the finest rabbinic legal mind of his day in the book of Acts, Gamaliel. And Paul was a lawyer. Um, and after the first century, in the close of the first century, you have Tertullian in the second century who was a defender of the Christian faith. But moving up more recently from then, the first textbook on the defense of the Christian faith was written by a lawyer, Hugo Grotius, who is called the father of international law. If you ever have to study international law, you'll study this gentleman's 
writings. He wrote a book called De Veritate Religionis Christianae, which is on the defense of the Christian religion. Um, probably the first hundred textbooks in the defense of the faith all had the same title. They weren't big into creativity in the 16th century and 17th century in the defense of the faith, but they went after issues related to the accuracy, reliability of the New Testament accounts. Uh, Grotius goes into alleged errors and contradictions, how lawyers can deal with these, how they deal with them in their practice and in litigation matters all the time. And he was one of the foremost thinkers in the area of the defense of the faith. You can still get his works today. Then there's Sir Matthew Hale, Lord High Chancellor under Charles II, wrote on the defense of the faith. Uh, William Blackstone in the 18th century. You might remember Jefferson started the law school at the University of Virginia because of his extreme distaste for William Blackstone. Uh, Blackstone's uh, commentaries on the laws of England, the four-set volume, is considered the standard work on systematizing the common law tradition in England and had a tremendous impact on American jurisprudence. Abraham Lincoln read Blackstone. Uh, largely that was his preparation for taking his bar exam, was to understand the legal common law tradition given to us by England. And Blackstone starts off volume one of the Commentaries of the Laws of England by saying, everyone should begin their study of law by studying Holy Scripture because Holy Scripture is revelatory and no law should suffer to contradict Scripture. That's William Blackstone. In the 19th century in our country, we have good old Simon Greenleaf. Marvelous name. Um, Simon Greenleaf was a professor of evidence in the 19th century at the Harvard Law School. Did the three-volume set, uh, some of you may have studied it, modestly entitled Greenleaf on Evidence. Um, as you know, uh, that is one of the great um, seminal sets on the common law tradition in the area of evidence. Few know that Simon Greenleaf was a strong believing Christian, so much so that it got him motivated to write the Constitution for the, na the nation of Liberia in the 19th century because of his interest in foreign missions. He was president of the Massachusetts Bible Society and particularly Greenleaf's great work is entitled The Testimony of the Evangelists, where he puts Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John on the witness stand and cross-examines them to see if they would hold up in a court of law. Then in the 20th century, you have people like Sir Norman Anderson in England, greatest authority on Islamic law, believing Christian, has written extensively on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then we have today probably the greatest leading and living legal apologist in the area of defense of the faith, John Warwick Montgomery, who if you come to Strasbourg, you'll learn legal apologetics under Montgomery, author of 50 books, 11 earned degrees, American barrister, French avocat, um, a tremendous defender of uh, the faith. And in, indeed, in our own century, Lord Hailsham in England was a believing Christian, wrote on the defense of the faith. You read his book, The Door Wherein I Went, he discusses how he came into Christian faith. Point of all this is, lawyers have been tremendously attracted to the Christian faith. I have to mention this because theologically I'm Lutheran. Those of you who need to leave now can do that. Understand? Theologically I'm Lutheran. Luther studied a year of law and got wise to it. 
ended up in the monastery as a result, um, running screaming out of his legal education, much to his father's consternation. Calvin himself took a law degree. Uh, so this tradition of Reformation theology, having an appreciation and understanding of the law, the place of law in society, is very, very strong. So what is the attraction between lawyers and the Christian faith? What is it about Christian truth claims that have attracted lawyers to examine them over time? Well, first let's look at, for a moment, what is it about the law that makes it unique. What is it? What are the factors about the law that gives such an attraction to being investigated by Christians in the legal profession? First, law is fact-driven. Litigation is fact-driven, as you all know who are litigators here. Generally, underlying every legal dispute is a factual dispute of some type. The law is fact driven. Second, it is, because of that, evidence-based. We are very interested in presenting admissible evidence in a court of law to the trier of fact. Evidence that will stand up in a court of law. And as you know, you've suffered through the bar exam. Uh, I don't know what the bar exam's like in Alabama, probably not a lot different than in California, but there's an entire section just on evidence. And I'm sure you took in law school a course devoted to evidence itself. Evidence is central to what we do as lawyers, particularly to those involved in trial work and in litigation. Law is evidence-oriented. Third, it's oriented toward probability reasoning. Probability reasoning, not possibility reasoning. The fact is, factual claims never rise to 100% certainty. There's always an element of a possible other explanation of the events than what's being offered. But law has understood from the beginning that facts, because they're never rising to 100% certainty, still can be marshaled beyond a reasonable doubt to a legal certainty to convict people of crimes and to send people to the death uh, sentence as a result. Law understands that, that probability reasoning is what we're about. We're not interested in trying to obtain 100% certainty. The only way you can obtain 100% certainty is through deductive logic. Propositions of formal mathematics or formal deductive logic. You can get, assuming the axioms, you can develop proof theorems that are 100% certain. But facts aren't that way. They aren't purely formal. They deal with the real world. Deductive logic doesn't tell you what the facts of the world are. It only tells you how to relate them after you found out what the facts are. So law has always been very interested in the burden of proof and evidence and how much evidence is necessary to establish a fact. And lawyers, because they can be annoying, those of you that are here, not lawyers, but married or attached to a lawyer can understand this, they're annoying human beings. They always want to know what's central to the argument to win a case, particularly in the trial realm. They go for a verdict. It's not enough to sit around and talk about things in speculative worlds. That's why lawyers are driven insane by many sermons. Because there's no evidence whatsoever presented for why the priest, pastor, whatever happens to think their position is correct. 
and lawyers are driven crazy by this. They want, in fact, evidence that demands a verdict. They want to resolve questions of fact and resolve them in the direction of a clear verdict. So lawyers are oriented this way. And they're oriented toward understanding who has the burden of proof. In a civil litigation, the plaintiff generally has the burden of proof in something. It's very important to lawyers. Whose job is it to prove the case? Okay, so what? So that tells us what we knew, what lawyers and the law generally is about, that it deals with real controversies, not speculative things. You don't get to go into court and say, Judge, I think in about 18 weeks something's going to happen over there on the corner of Main and 6th Street and I'd like to have a resolution of it today in court. The judge will throw you out on your ear. You don't have a controversy that is ripe Lawyers like and judges particularly want a ripe controversy that needs to be resolved by a verdict or a decision. Well, that may be fine and good. That's what the law is. But what in the world does that have to do with Christianity? What is it about Christianity in particular that's attracted lawyers? I'll suggest a few things to you. First, Christianity is fact-centered. It is centered on a central factual claim being true. If it is not true, lawyers have understood, it can be refuted. Christianity asks to be falsified. It is really the only world religion and religious position that puts itself out there and asks to be checked out, verified, or falsified. If it did not happen, the central fact of the claim, you should not believe it. In fact, the text says that. The writers of the text say, in first of the first letter of Corinthians, chapter 15, if this didn't happen, if Christ is not resurrected from the dead, we are the most pathetic people on the earth. We've deceived ourselves about the life after. We've deceived other people. As the Apostle Paul put it, you should be eat, eating, drinking, and being merry. You should not be at meetings like this. You should, be, you should be having fun because tomorrow you die and are vaporized. None of this matters. Ethics don't matter. Getting what you want now matters. Uh, people drive me crazy who say it wouldn't matter if Christ rose again from the dead or not. We still have ethics. I say hogwash. Paul didn't believe that. He believed in absolute hedonism if Christ is, hasn't risen from the dead. All bets are off and all morality is really off. So Christianity is fact-centered and historical. It's based on a central fact of the resurrection from 1 Corinthians 15. And we'll see in a minute, this has been very attractive to trial lawyers. They've realized if they could take on the resurrection and defeat its factual claims, Christianity, by its own admission, would fall. So sometimes you want to be very annoying in the Sunday school class. You might ask the following question. No hands, please. How many of you would still be a Christian if the body of Christ was found tomorrow? Anybody who raises their hand is unfortunately not consistent with the biblical picture because Paul wouldn't be a Christian if the body of Christ was found tomorrow. The Christian church should simply put a for sale sign up and move on to other worthwhile activities like having bingo games in the church. Okay. You know, sometimes you can loosen up. Sometimes you work this stuff. And I noticed that in the sermon today. It was, it was 
difficult. I'm from California. We'll see if things loosen up as we go on. Okay, fact-centered, fact-centered. Secondly, it gives a verifiability criteria. That is the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 12-19. Paul says in Acts 26, none of this happened in a corner. He says this to the ruling authorities, to Agrippa and Festus. They challenge him. He says, none of this happened in a corner. You know this didn't happen in a corner. You can check out the witnesses that are floating around. And he pinned his life on the fact that it could be checked out. Thirdly, Christianity is primary source-based. It is based on the claim that eyewitnesses or very close associates of eyewitnesses wrote this material. And we'll look at that for a few minutes here tonight. If the text is corrupt, there is no way you're going to get a clear factual presentation that you can rely on for a resurrection. So if the text was actually created by inebriated monks in the 4th century, after Constantine decided he wanted to have more power, um, then we got real trouble whether 1 Corinthians 15 is accurate. The Christian claims are this is primary source. John says, I saw this. What we beheld. What we handled concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ. So it's primary source based. And fourthly, it goes for a verdict. It goes for a verdict, indeed. As Jesus said, if you don't believe in me, you will die in your sins. In John 8.24, John 1.12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. So, it goes for a verdict. It doesn't allow us to sit on our backsides and listen to the evidence. It pushes us in the direction of a verdict. That's the nature of Christian truth claims. So what do we want to do for just the few minutes that we have, and I'll open it up for questions, unless there's something just gnawing you at the moment I say it, and you have to raise your hand, then I'll ignore you, and we'll move on to the next point. Um, we'll have a time for questions. We want to apply legal reasoning to the central case for Christianity. And I want to first lay out for you in just a very four short points, very short, you don't have to write them down if not, I teach these to 8th graders. I don't believe anybody and no one gets out of a high school class I teach and goes to college without being able to fundamentally put forward a legal case for Christianity. It's in four very simple points. Very simple points. The first point is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are trustworthy historical documents. They are primary source material. That's point one. Point two in those trustworthy primary source records, Jesus claims to be God in the flesh. Establish that. Three, in all four of these primary source documents, Christ's death and resurrection is described in great detail. And four, Christ's resurrection from the dead proves his deity. Those are the four points. Those are the four simple points on the case for Christianity that can be established beyond a reasonable doubt and has been done by trial lawyers for 300 years. If you come to Strasbourg, we have an entire course on the trial lawyers and how they specifically do this. Those are the four points. I want to spend some significant um, attention on the first point. The first point, that the 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are primary source documents and that they are reliable historical uh, materials. Now, when I have a chance to speak in university settings, this is the one subject area that I spend most of the time on because once this is established, the other three points go very, very rapidly and logically because they're easier to establish for those who've been brought up in particular Christian church circles, for example. But we want to spend some time looking at this first question, how good are the documents? Are they authentic? Do they come early? Or are they corrupted? Uh, I've debated the Jesus uh, seminar folk uh, before, and they give the very definite impression that this stuff cannot possibly be relied on by any intelligent human being. Is that the situation? Do they come late? Do they have a corrupted source? Or what can we determine about the nature of the documents? How good are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Well, we want to apply a few tests to these works to find out if they're reliable. These aren't religious tests. These aren't theological tests. These are tests you apply to any work that predates the printing press to determine if it's gotten to you reliably. This is what you apply to Catullus's poetry from 1st century BC to determine if what you're reading is in fact what was written by Catullus in 85 BC or not. These aren't fancy Christian church tests. The three tests are the bibliographical test, the internal evidence test, and the external evidence test. You apply these to a work to determine is what I'm reading written by the people who, says it was, say, who say they wrote it about the time that's claimed in the work itself. It's very simple. How good is the manuscript authority? How good is that tradition that gives us the work that we have today? And the way you find that out is through the bibliographical test in general. doesn't mean the work is the Word of God. And it doesn't mean the work is factually accurate. The only question we're asking is, did the people who write it, who, who say they wrote it, write it, and has it come down to us reliably over the period in the centuries of time? So, the question, one question we ask is, well, how many copies of that document exist? More copies, the more likelihood you're going to create a assurance as you compare them, that what you've ended up with is reliable. If there's massive changes over the centuries, all kinds of doctrines changing, factual claims changing, and you compare manuscript uh, documents and traditions and they're all different, you have a corrupted text, you have no idea what was said. What's the situation with respect to that and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? So we want to know how many copies there are and how early do they come. Well, if there's very few copies and they come late, you're going to have trouble. For example, for example, I mentioned Catullus's poetry, Roman poetry, Latin poetry. Some of you suffered. Actually, it's not. It's erotic poetry, so some of you enjoyed it. Um, take that back. Uh, Catullus was 85 to 55 B.C., a poet. We have no original writings of Catullus. We have basically none, no originals of any of the works of classical antiquity, by the way. We don't have any originals of Shakespeare, so don't worry about that. Okay? We don't have many, many of these. We have no original autographs written by Aristotle, 
Homer's Iliad, uh, Thucydides, and some of the others. We work with that in the book back there, The Defense Never Rests, give you a chart. I suffered to make those charts, so you should look at them in the books. The question is with Catullus, when is the earliest copy after he died? The earliest copy of Catullus comes from late 14th century. 14th century. Almost 1400 years after the events that are in the, the poetry that's recorded in them. Yet at my university, University of California, Santa Barbara, you can get a master's degree in Catullus. Now, do the students ever say, you know, really, professor, you've ripped us off. How do we know what Catullus wrote? Maybe it was some inebriated monk in the 6th century saying his name was Catullus and did this manuscript and stuck it in the monastery in Basel, Switzerland and you found it in the late 14th century. No, Catullus is based on three manuscripts that come very, very late. And yet you'll find classical scholars accepting the general authenticity and reliability of classical works without much problem at all. This is why, note, footnote, whenever I presented the manuscript reliability for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I have never gotten objections from classics professors. That's Stanford, University of Chicago, University of Washington, uh, major Ivy League schools. The classics departments love the manuscript tradition of the New Testament Gospels. That's the real stuff. It's only the religion department that has problems. <laughs> this is true. The most hostility you will get is from the religion department who are really doing philosophy, not scholarship. They are, they are imposing their views of what this thing should talk about. And because it, for example, presents miracles, we all know miracles can't occur. We all know that. We're omniscient. You don't even have to check out the evidence for one anymore. You simply know a priori before checking out the evidence that it can't possibly occur. So, the situation with works of classical antiquity is the copies come few and they, become, they come very, very late. The situation with the New Testament is precisely the opposite. And for example, you take those three copies of Catullus and you compare them with one another. They may agree, but they come so late you don't know what happened during that 1400 year gap. So the more copies you have, the earlier they come, the more you can compare them, the more you have confidence that what you're reading is what was written originally. What's the situation with the New Testament? There's a large number of copies that can be cross-checked that generally all end up saying the same thing. Contra Bart Ehrman. Sorry, Bart. I'm a professor of theology at North Carolina. It makes it sound like there's a zillion errors in the Bible. Uh, there may be a comma that is different in a number of different places in 5,000 manuscripts and those are counted as 5,000 errors. And you're made to think, my heavens, uh, it must be so corrupted I can't even get any picture of who Jesus Christ is in the resurrection. Hardly. Hardly. That's why today when you hear there's a new edition of the Bible coming out in 10 weeks and you run to the, the Bible store that actually has a book nowadays, which is an amazing thing. And you go, that was a joke, um, <laughs> rough. Uh, and you buy the Bible and you open it up and you start to read it and you realize it's 99.9% .9 like the King James Version. You're desperately disappointed 
uh, you are thinking there's going to be some doctrine that's omitted, and it's not. Why? Because there's so many manuscript copies, and they're generally all good. Generally all good. Illustration. Illustration. In the 16th century, Erasmus, he was Luther's foil in the 16th century, Erasmus put together the best text of the Greek New Testament, called the Novum Testamentum of 1516. Erasmus had very little to deal with, very few manuscripts to collect to figure out what the New Testament should look like in Greek. Erasmus did a very primitive uh, approach to this. Uh, He would go in the morning to the monasteries. He would wake up the inebriated monks. This is no joke. You read in Praise of Folly. They were in all kinds of conditions. He would wake them up. He'd say a sophisticated question like, where are your old manuscripts? They'd say, down there, Monk X has one. And he'd go down and he'd look at it and he'd compare things. The fact is, the best and earliest text Erasmus had for the Greek New Testament was a bad one from the 10th century. was one that we think now has probably got a lot of grammatical problems to it. doesn't change any doctrine. doesn't change the meaning of any text. But has all kinds of errors in it. That's what Erasmus used in the 10th, had a 10th century manuscript. He built his entire manuscript for the book of Revelation in the Greek from one manuscript in the 12th century from a monastery in Basel, Switzerland. This was very primitive. Very primitive. So you think, what's, what's your point? The point was that became the basis for the authorized version of the King James. Okay? That was considered in the 16th century authoritative. It became considered to be the text that we will base Scripture on today. (gasps) Does that mean the King James is a mess? Well, move forward to the 19th century. You had a much more sophisticated approach being taken to whether the Scripture had come down to us reliably or not. In England, you had Westcott and Hort. In Germany, you had Tischendorf. They presented a much more scientific effort at getting at the pure text. Result? Drum roll, please. The text ends up being 99.9% like Erasmus's Novum Testamentum of 1516. Why? Why? Because Erasmus could hardly go wrong. The manuscript tradition is that good. It's that consistent over the centuries. The result is the King James Version reads, as you know today, like the New King James Version reads, like the New American Standard, All the texts are so good. When compared to other uh, manuscript traditions, there's simply no comparison. There's no comparison. Well, that's the bibliographical test. How many copies do we have? How early do they come? This is given in great detail in Defense Never Rests and Religion on Trial, if you want to read it in more detail. And my sources for this, by the way, as a lawyer, are not Christians. I don't cite Christians for this proposition that the New Testament Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are the most reliable works of all antiquity. I use secular sources for that. I don't have to use Pastor X from Joy Bell's church in Woodhaven, Texas. No, I don't have to do that. I can use Catullus scholars. I can use others in the classical tradition that have done the work. F.W. Hall's chief authorities for the manuscript tradition of the New Testament He was a classics professor in in Oxford. So this is not a Christian thing I'm saying here. In fact, Bart Ehrman himself will admit 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the best sources for the life of Jesus of anything that we have today. So whenever somebody says to me, but, but what about, I'm kind of jumping ahead, but I'll give it to you anyway. Um, this is free. What about the Gnostic Gospels? What about the discovery of the Gospel of Thomas? All of it comes late 2nd century material. No attestation to it that it's reliable primary source stuff. Trial lawyers in here would have no problem discarding that. When you have primary source material by people who say, we saw it, or we talked to the people who did see it, and we wrote it down, and we paid for it with our blood to get it right. We take that over the late stuff that contradicts Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Okay, that's the bibliographical test. Well, I had two other tests. Yippee, yippee, two other tests. One, the internal evidence test. Internal evidence. What does that ask about the text? It asks, how good are the witnesses, how reliable are the witnesses that are giving the testimony in the text? How good are they? How many are they? What was their ability to get the story right? Um, Looked at this, as you look at this situation from the perspective of how lawyers would look at it, Simon Greenleaf has done the best work on it in the 19th century, where he applied the laws of legal evidence to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to their internal tests to see whether they are consistent internally. Do they contradict one another? Um, do they have an axe to grind? Are these are people who don't like to talk about their own problems, sins, unbelief? What was their ability to get the story correct? Well, first, these witnesses are honest about their own sins. Mark in the Gospel of Mark, who relied heavily on Peter, is the one who beats up Peter all over the place in the book of Mark. In the book of Mark, you have Peter's denial. You have the classic line in the Mount of Transfiguration where Peter says, it's good for us to be here. I'd like to construct something. And the Lord says, Peter, shut up. Um, that comes in Mark. Uh, you have Peter being used by Satan in Mark. Hardly something that Mark would record if he wanted to make Peter look like a really brilliant, sharp guy who got it from the beginning. They don't paint over their sins and errors in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And their ability to get it right is clear. John says, I was an eyewitness. Matthew and Peter, via Mark, were eyewitnesses. Luke and Matthew in particular had abilities training professionally in recording events and getting truth claims right. Matthew was an IRS agent. Um, we all know that they are, know how to smell a fraud if there's anyone who ever did. They keep careful records or several sets of careful records. Uh, Matthew was a tax professional. Luke, we all know, is a physician from Colossians 4.4. We all know they can't write cleanly, but they can write. He was doing diagnoses all over the place. In Luke, you find in the book of Acts all the great diagnosis of the people with diseases that Jesus heals. That's Luke's interest as a trained physician. He knew how to record, observe, and record carefully. This is the kind of internal evidence that we have. Um, and it's also interesting that lawyers have done very careful work analyzing Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and their claims to get this story correct. And lawyers have analyzed how difficult it is to pull off a joint conspiracy amongst people without somebody blowing cover. 
uh, as you know. It's very tough if you're making up a story to keep it cohesive. Um, there's always some problem with that. And what does Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John do? They load their material with factual detail. Load it with it. Read Luke 3, 1 to 3 sometime and ask yourself, do people write like that who are trying to hide things? People who are trying to hide things testify like once upon a time in a village long ago, a man in a white curtain looking like um, an androgynous being from some poem came into our town and he was God. And by the way, he rose again from the dead and he's now not available to be checked out. Thank you very much. It's been wonderful. That's how you write if you're not interested in being checked out. You record things that are impossible of being verified, like Islamic miracles. And the, uh, the miracles in the Quran in general, if you find one, are largely completely unverifiable. Uh, Mohammed has a personal experience where things dip through his tunic and come out the other way and the moon's all set on the other side. No one else has seen this. It's self-verifying. You either believe it or not. You're not given any other way to check that out. Any other witnesses who may have seen it to call it on the carpet. Well, the New Testament writers had the opportunity to get this right. There's a sufficient number of witnesses. Are there differences in the Gospel writings? Absolutely. Do they show a sign of collusion? No. They speak, in fact, in stereo. Um, and we'll talk about that when we talk for just a moment about alleged errors and contradictions. The testimony coincides with contemporaneous facts and other circumstances of the time. And that leads us to the third test, the external evidence test. External evidence. That asks the question, okay, fine. Document comes early. Okay, it's internally consistent doesn't look like they're pulling off a fraud or they're colluding with one another, but maybe they contradict well-established external facts of the day. How does the New Testament Gospels stand up on that stand? Well, we can know from archaeology, for example, there are a number of different lines showing the accuracy of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The people that have criticized those writers for not getting it right have ultimately found to be wanting. And the people that have stayed with the general reliability of these primary sources have been vindicated ultimately. Uh, in archaeology, for example, I mentioned uh, Luke 3, 1 to 3. There's a mention, just a throw aside, of a uh, Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene. You're thinking, and, and Luke is writing this saying, I'm going to tell you when the word of God came to John the Baptist. And he has about 15 people he mentions. Tiberius Caesar. He's got all these names. During their reign, their reign, their reign. I mean, you want him to say, and the guy who was the bathroom attendant was named Caesar. It's unbelievable. Not the kind of stuff you say if you're trying to lie. Well, anyway, he mentions this Lysanias Tetrarch of Abilene. Oh, said the critics. This obviously shows he got it wrong. There's never been found a tetrarch of Abilene. The only Lysanias was a king executed by Mark Antony in 34 B.C. That was considered an absolute error, an external evidence fact contradicting the Bible. can't rely on Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Then you find out William Ramsey in the 1940s in his discovery of an inscription in a temple was to the Lysanias Tetrarch of Abilene at the precise time that Luke records this being the case in Luke 3, 1-3. to 3. 
You have innumerable examples of this. You've had people that have gone through how Paul presents the shipwreck in Acts 27, how his ship got to Malta, have absolutely tracked this with what is known of the winds during that time in that area and exactly how the boat went is exactly presented historically and factually in an accurate means and way. So external evidence is very, very strong. We have strong external evidence that the writers that we think wrote Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John indeed did. We have external evidence from the writings of direct disciples of John called Polycarp and Papias. Marvelous names if you're thinking of names for your children. Um, That's Polycarp of Smyrna, not to be confused with Polycarp of Caesarea. Polycarp of Smyrna and Papias, Bishop of Heropolis, if you want to have the full name for your child. Uh, They were direct disciples of John. Their words are recorded in historians, uh, uh, both Eusebius and others, that they were told directly by John that John wrote his gospel, strangely enough, that Matthew the tax gatherer wrote the gospel of Matthew, and Mark was written by the close associate of Peter, um, and Luke by the physician. External evidence of that. What are some other lines of external evidence that this stuff has come down to us at an early stage after the events that took place. Well, let me suggest one that's been suggested over 150 years ago by a lawyer. The fact is, the book of Acts mentions a number of deaths. The book of Acts is primarily the story of Peter and Paul and their missionary journeys. And yet, Acts records the death of Stephen and a bunch of other people. It has nothing about the death of Peter and Paul. There's solid, strong church tradition, historical tradition, that Peter and Paul were executed under Nero approximately 64 AD. It's not unreasonable to think that if they had been dead at the time the book of Acts had been written, it would have recorded it. Considering it gave an immense amount of space to Peter and Paul, you would think if they were dead, wouldn't you mention it? I mean, it kind of ends the ministry. You know, usually you put that in as something to say, and postscript, Paul is dead. The assumption here is, book of Acts was written while Paul was still alive and comes before 64 AD. By the way, if you want to know about Peter and Paul being executed under Nero, that comes from Clement's letter of 95 AD and Suetonius' biography of Nero, which is fascinating reading. Not, it is not fascinating reading, but... It is there. There's no mention of Peter or Paul's death. So, the assumption from that is the book of Luke predates Acts. Acts comes before 64 AD. Before Acts is Luke. Luke is considered the preface to Acts. But Luke is not considered the earliest gospel. Mark, at least, probably predates Luke. So, what? Well, here's the chronology. 64 AD, Terminus. Before 64 AD, Acts. Before Acts, Luke. Before Luke, Mark. But Jesus was crucified approximately 30 to 33 AD. It doesn't leave sufficient time for big fish stories, especially since we understand from 1 Corinthians and other epistle letters that writings were circulating early on on these events. I mean, it's as if somebody from the death of time of of the assassination of John F. Kennedy said, you know, John F. Kennedy really wasn't assassinated in 1962. He's now the Pope. And he is Benedict. 
That's who he really is. The rest of us would say, you ninny, you need to be put away for a period of treatment. Uh, We all have seen it. We know we have eyewitnesses around still. And we had people motivated to refute this case if indeed it could be refuted. And you have silence on the subject. I try to deal with that in uh, religion on trial in particular. In California, civil litigation and evidentiary law, if you have the ability to refute a key fact of a party and you don't, I can comment on that at trial in closing argument. That you had the ability to refute the central fact being presented against your client and you didn't do it. The jury can draw the inference that you didn't have the evidence to refute it. In fact, the evidence is of silence on trying to refute or produce the body of Christ. The, the Jewish and Roman authorities had, uh, had sufficient motivation uh, to try and keep this thing from going anywhere and would have been fully motivated to try and find the body. And you wonder why the disciples themselves went through with it if it was a joke or a, a hoax why they then suffered martyrs' deaths for it. Well, what about, that's the external evidence. Some of the external evidence comes from archaeology, comes from this argument uh, presented about Paul and Peter's death. There's also non-biblical sources for the life of Christ. Uh, I won't go into those. We don't have time. Um, But if you're interested in doing this and you're a particular nerd, no, 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 no. You like to read this kind of thing. You should get Gary Habermas's book, Ancient Evidence for the Life of Jesus. A bibliography is available back there in the, uh, the back of the book, The Defense Never Rests, and it has this book mentioned in it. In this book, Habermas, a historian, presents 39 sources that present 110 facts about the life of Jesus from non-biblical sources you can establish a fairly clear picture of who Jesus was from secular sources. I don't particularly get thrilled by that. Why? Because those other sources are hearsay sources. They're late first century, second century in many cases, sources for the life of Jesus. They're not primary source and there's nothing wrong with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They, were, uh, they are the primary source material and judges would have a very bad time saying, why are you presenting all this other stuff, Mr. Parton? Don't you have better evidence? Well, I do, but I, I thought I'd give you the bad stuff first <laughs> and don't waste time doing that kind of thing. But there is secular evidence for the life of Jesus that you will find. It's not primary source uh, material. Well, what about, for example, the objection that I just raised about the extra uh, non-Christian Gospels, the Gnostic Gospels. I've already mentioned this stuff, there's no external evidence or internal evidence that the stuff is eyewitness accounts of the resurrection. The people that had the most on the line to get this right were there. People who come in the second century weren't there. And there's already clear indication that this story is getting abused for all kinds of different reasons by the second century. There's no external evidence or internal evidence that this stuff is primary source material. So, you apply the laws of legal evidence, laws of legal reasoning, the primary source evidence, the best evidence rule from trial work to these sources, you find that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are reliable. Now, that doesn't mean what they, uh, what they got has to be accepted as gospel. I don't notice, I haven't used the word gospels. That's assuming what I'm trying to prove, that this stuff is reliable material that presents 
a central story to it. It's the central story is, of course, the person and work of Jesus Christ. But that first point we established in the case for Christianity, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are trustworthy historical documents. They are primary source materials. And you can use secular sources to establish that fact. Well, that's point one. I just spent an enormous amount of time doing that. I'm exhausted. Um, But you'll notice if you don't do this, and you have people asking you that they think there are problems with the source you are using, you, will, you are wasting time trying to go on to a case where your sources are considered to be problematic. The general consensus of people on the street today is that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are unknown, that the material comes very late, that it's corrupted, and that nobody should pit any kind of life view, world view, let alone their own salvation, based on what those characters said. That stuff was put together by the Catholic Church hundreds of years later because they wanted to get money out of people. And the monks had nothing better to do than embellish the stories anyway, for heaven's sake. That's the general perception. So you need to be prepared to spend significant time in this. A preaching moment... I train young kids in the the evidence for the reliability of the New Testament. I think it's the most important stuff I can do for them. Catechism class gives them the rest of this case real easily. The, The stuff runs very naturally from this. But you've got to get them material that will equip the next generation to understand why Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are reliable and can be held up in any court of law today. Well, they are reliable. Number two, all I'm establishing is they're reliable. I'm not establishing that they're Gospels. I'm not trying to argue that they're inerrant. I'm just saying they're reliable. What we have today is what was written by these people and has come down to us in a trustworthy manner. Okay. Frankly, the Quran is like that. Quran comes on top of the basically the life of Muhammad doesn't mean that it's in the inerrant Word of God. In fact, it contains all kinds of wacky historical statements in it. So, I haven't established anything other than it's a trustworthy document. It's come down to us in a reliable way. But, point two, in those reliable records, Jesus claims to be God in the flesh. Not a Galilean Boy Scout. Some people believe the picture of Jesus from the Bible is he's helping little old ladies across the Sea of Galilee. Uh, He is interested in ethics. He's interested in everyone being nice. The picture I get from the Jesus Seminar is that Jesus is substantially like everybody in the Jesus Seminar. (laughs) Which means politically on one side of the spectrum uh, and all Jesus' views just happen to line up with their political and social views. Um, In this reliable document, Jesus claims, and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, reliable documents, Jesus claims to be God in human flesh. This is not hard to establish. Jesus says it himself in many places. If you don't believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Sane people don't talk like this. I came down from heaven. I am the bread of heaven. He who believes in me will never die. Sick. This is not the statements of somebody who is normal. This man thought he was God's only son. He said it. 
and that He was being given for the life of the world to redeem the world from rebellion to God. John 8.24, good passage on it. Luke 5.18-24, the healing of the paralytic. Jesus not only heals the paralytic, but He says, by the way, just thought I'd throw it in. Your sins are forgiven. Everybody says, now that's the end. That's it? It's one thing to heal people. It's another thing to say you're forgiving their sins. When did this guy ever sin against you? I mean, Jesus gives a strong impression from the primary source material that your sin against another person is ultimately a sin against him and that he has authority to forgive it. That's how fundamental he thought his claims were. This man claimed to be God. We saw that in the sermon today from John 20, 28, where St. Thomas said, after being having the body of Christ presented to him in living fashion, my Lord and my God. It is the clearest attestation of the deity of Christ. I had somebody once say, well, no, no. He, they're just surprised. They're saying, my Lord and my God. <laughs> I actually had somebody say that. Um, but this is the kind of attestation that you get. This man claimed to be God. Well, so we say, and lawyers should say, so what? So what? Lots of people claim all kinds of wacky things nowadays. Um, reminds me of the, the story of the, um, the mental patient. Um, and he was in an institution and the seminary student came to visit him on, on call. Of course, the, the head rector didn't want to go there, so he sent the, the uh, vicar. Maybe that's it in Episcopalian terms. Vicar. I don't know. Lutherans don't have a lot of these things. So, Vicar. Vicar, go visit so-and-so. And he goes into the mental hospital and he sees a guy there who's got his hand in his jacket and Trico three-cornered hat, looking very um, imperial. And the vicar says, Sir, uh, who are you? Napoleon, bien sûr. Napoleon, of course. And the vicar says, Well, uh, who told you that? God did. And a voice from the other room, one of the inmates says, I did not. <laughs> So there's people floating around all kinds of places like this. Talk is cheap. Claims to be God are cheap. They're all over society today. I have them in town of Santa Barbara. We have hundreds of different religions, all kinds of nature religions and other people saying they're part of deity. They are deity. Claims can be cheap, which is absolutely correct. Just because we have a reliable document, just because this man claims to be God in it, doesn't prove it's the case. However, point three, in all these primary source records, Jesus' death and resurrection is described in great detail. The majority of these works, primary source materials, are fixated on the last week of the life of Jesus Christ. His death has been very carefully analyzed by physicians, in fact, medical doctors, who have looked at whether the way the record is, is set of how he was crucified, whether it is consistent with what we know of Roman practices, and whether this man could have survived it. The overwhelming medical evidence, and I have it back in, in Religion on Trial, is that in fact this man was crucified according to the uh, very strong work and tradition of Roman authorities of the time and was dead on the cross. The best journal article on it is called on the Physical Death of Jesus Christ, published in the American Medical Association Journal, March 21, 1986. Now, last time I checked, the AMA was not exactly 
the pronouncing vehicle of the Christian faith. Okay? These are medical doctors who looked at this, published their findings and said, this man, here's, here's what you went through in a Roman crucifixion. There is no way this man could have survived. Christ's resurrection, in fact, is the best explanation of all the data and all of the information we have about who Jesus Christ and what actually happened after the crucifixion. This isn't a matter of me trying to um, come up with something. The text says it. The text says the best explanation is, here's what happened. At point A, you have Jesus dead. Verified, factually dead. The gig is over. At point B, you have Him alive again, appearing to people. The natural inference from that is that there has been a resurrection. It doesn't matter that nobody saw it in the tomb. The fact is you don't have an eyewitness to what happened inside the tomb. You have a man dead at point A. You have him alive at point B. You have, ipso facto, a resurrection. That's what the evidence points you to as a result. His resurrection is the best understanding of the data. And any explanation that doesn't take in the maximum number of facts is the poor interpretation of the events. The best interpretation is the one that deals with as most established facts as you can and doesn't disregard facts simply because they don't fit into your worldview. The mature person, the person that allows their life to be molded and formed by the way the world really is, lets facts speak for themselves. We don't ignore them because they impinge on our worldview or we can't explain them. People say, well, people were naive during that time. Um, well, there weren't, it wasn't like the Jews didn't know who was dead and they kept burying live people. <laughs> we have no record of that happening. From all we know, they knew when somebody was dead. And certainly the Roman crucifixion teams knew their business. So Christ's resurrection is the best explanation of all the data. And all the theories that ignore that data ignore it at their own peril. Fourth point and last point, Christ's resurrection proves His deity. His resurrection proves His deity. If ever there was a place for worship, this is it. Death, in fact, is the great leveler of all humanity. I don't care what a person's viewpoint and worldview is, death crashes and crushes in on all of us. It is the ultimate leveler of all human existence. It is what is the, the, the concentration of many of the great writers, the French existential writers, uh, that life has no meaning or purpose because death ultimately wipes us from this earth. I am the first to admit to you that if Jesus came to this earth and said, I am God and I'm going to verify it by growing hair on a billiard ball, would that prove that He was God in the flesh? Hardly. Um, that doesn't exist. That was a joke. <laughs> it's a tough group. It's a really tough hardly proves that he is God. Why? Because growing hair on a billiard ball does not exactly go to the essence of the human condition, does it? If God became man, what one thing would I at least, and I think all of us here, if we're honest with ourselves, want him to pronounce on that he has victory over? Not pattern baldness, not hemorrhoids, or ingrown toenails, or kidney stones. Though having had kidney stones, I wouldn't mind having that as a 
being the answer. You would want him to have opined on the central issue of humanity, which he said was our separation from God because of our cosmic and personal rebellion toward God. And as a result of that, God providing what we could never provide for ourselves, which was his own son in the person of Jesus Christ, living a perfect life and dying an atoning death for the sins of the world. And he deals with that by his resurrection from the dead. Well, that's all good and fine, but haven't you overlooked something? Aren't there other alternative explanations of the resurrection? We won't go into these in detail because I want to leave time for you to ask questions. Uh, I'll just mention a few of the common ones that you hear today. One is the the disciples thought they saw Jesus resurrected. They wanted it to believe to be true. They wanted it so badly to be true, they envisioned it. This is the Jesus Seminar um, uh, kind of approach recently when I messed with these people in Haiti on a, on a uh, debate on radio a couple of years ago. This was the, the latest one. They, they really wanted it to happen this way. Really. They wanted it. The text says they had really wished it was going to happen. What you find from the text is people scattered, scared, gone, unbelieving, had to be brought kicking and screaming to this belief. They had to verify it themselves. They were in shock, as Dorothy Sayers says. It's a shock of the disciples and the women realizing this grave is empty. They expected to embalm a body. They weren't naive people. They saw this battered and bruised person on the cross put down in a tomb. So, it's, we get to the issue of uh, mass, is it possible they really saw something else? The chances of this happening are very, very slim. It's not the most reasonable explanation of all the evidence. Remember, legal analysis, we go with the best probability explanation of the events that occurred, not possibility. People say, isn't it possible that Jesus was a Martian? This is Eric Von Donneken's Chariot of the Gods theory. Jesus was really from a foreign planet. He came in, he dressed himself up looking like Jesus, but he was really a Martian. There is no way to verify this. It's possible Von Donneken's a Martian. <laughs> Cleverly disguised as Eric Von Donneken. Uh, this is absolutely self-refuting. There is no way to get around these kinds of th theories out there. The question is, is there evidence for it? Same with the swoon theory presented by Vincarini in the 18th century. Jesus didn't really die. He swooned on the cross. Does the evidence suggest that this is a reasonable explanation of all the events? Well, just a couple of very brief things and I'll close. One, what about all the alleged errors and contradictions in the Bible? There's just hundreds of them. Um, I would suggest before you um, take that position that you read a couple of basic works on dealing with alleged errors and contradictions. Everyone should have a few in their library. Why? Because Christian defenders of the faith and particularly lawyers have been dealing with these for hundreds of years. Augustine and Jerome in the 4th century dealt with many alleged errors and contradictions in their correspondence. Luther and Calvin dealt with these. Uh, and in the 19th and 20th century, you have people like Gleason Archer, John Haley, and others who have done extensive volumes dedicated to showing that these problems can be resolved with an understanding of the original languages, which Archer has a very good handle on. Uh, understanding of what a true contradiction is, 
would deal with half of them. People claim that something's a contradiction. They don't understand that it's possible that something can, both things can be true without any contradiction whatsoever. For example, if I tell you John was struck in a crosswalk and died later, I have a witness to say that. But then I have a second witness that says John was hit by a, when he was in a car by a bus and died immediately. I have both witnesses. How can those possibly be reconciled? Well, John was walking across the crosswalk, got hit. The injuries were terminal. He would have died eventually. Put him in the car to go to the hospital. Got slammed by a bus and died immediately. <laughs> Not a good case to handle if you're on the defense side, but it was... These things happen all the time. I submit to you any alleged contradiction in Scripture has likely been dealt with very effectively by prior defenders of the faith. People have spent many, many lifetimes looking through these alleged errors and contradictions and have attempted to resolve them. All I'm saying is, when you get to something that creates a problem, the wise person reserves judgment in light of the track record that the material, the, the primary source material has for being vindicated in the long run. Up to 1962, there was no Pontius Pilate. That was an error of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There had never been any archaeological discovery linking anyone named Pontius Pilate until the discovery of the Pilate Stone in 1962. My suggestion is it is wise to reserve judgment in light of the track record that we have of resolving these alleged errors and contradictions as we go through uh, time. Finally and last, isn't it all anyway just a matter of your interpretation? What do lawyers have to say about that? Can't you just argue with this stuff, these facts mean anything you want them to mean? And here, lawyers, we can provide help to the brethren that are all a mess with postmodern literary analysis. Um, that kind of stuff is messy, messy, messy scholarship. We know from legal reasoning and dealing in courts of law with documents that the law has various principles of interpretation. Principles of interpretation. That you go with the natural sense and usage of words. The natural sense. You give full force and effect to the whole document, not trying to pull apart one part of a document and pit it against other parts of the document if it's an integrated whole. The law understands that getting to the best interpretation based on the most number of facts is something we do all the time. And when it comes to looking at the material from which Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are operating, presenting the case for Jesus Christ, I present to you that the case is clear, it is perspicuous, it is understandable, and it presents a very clear picture of who Jesus Christ is. And the verdict it calls for indeed is clear. A verdict that is, uh, should be brought down on the basis of all of the evidence. Now, those are some of the comments about law, theology, and the integration of law and theology. Uh, some of the issues that we've talked about have dealt with uh, the factual case for Christianity, how lawyers look at this, and uh, how they present their case in a court of law. Lawyers have looked at this from Greenleaf and others, Grotius, up to the current time, and have put Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John on the stand. I suggest and offer to you to look at that work yourself, particularly if you're a skeptic, 
If you're somebody who needs to look at it for yourself, do not take my word for it. Look for yourself. Study the evidence on your own. Hopefully, Religion on Trial back there is written with the skeptic in mind. I tried to assume the least and prove the most in that book. And if you find problems in it or logical pitfalls there, bring them to my attention. But the effort there is to try and make it clear that we should work with people that have questions in these areas, uh, present to them the maximum amount of evidence, and get them to, and, and ourselves in talking to them, assume the least with them. You don't start conversations, by the way, assuming the Bible is the Word of God. And now I'm going to show to you why it's true. That's circular reasoning. I have very carefully tried to avoid circular reasoning tonight. I have not started out by assuming the Bible's the Word of God or inerrant. In fact, I'm not at that point in this argument. However, because it's free, there is a corollary to these four points that I just made. And the corollary is, if Jesus is God and has proven it by His resurrection, then if He opines on a topic, it's best to listen. <laughs> it's best to listen. And... So, just what if he opined on the reliability and authority of the Scripture itself as a whole? And he does just that. Not a jot or tittle shall pass away from this till all is accomplished. The devil takes him out in Matthew 5 and speaks with him a little bit and says, by the way, the Scripture says, if you throw yourself off the top of this, you, you won't even hit your head. Wouldn't that have been a perfect time for Jesus to say, excuse me, devil, it's just you and me out here. Okay? Just the two of us. Don't use that source. It's not reliable. <laughs> David did not have it right. It doesn't mean that. No. He says you've forgotten. You don't understand the full understanding of Scripture. It also says the following. He does that regularly in his temptation. Jesus puts his stamp of approval on the Old Testament and its complete authority. This is how I defend difficult areas of the Old Testament. Uh, different uh, issues in the Old Testament. For example, Jonah and the whale. Jonah and the whale. I go with what Jesus said. He's the best witness of it. He said he's God in the flesh and can opine about whether it happened or not. Beats me, I wasn't there. Beats me how big of a fish it was. I wasn't consulted. I just go with what the evidence... And Jesus says, look, I am God in the flesh. I'm going to tell you a few things about the Old Testament. Put my stamp of approval on the most controversial stories from it. And if you have problems with those being historical, you're going to have a problem with who Jesus Christ is. In my view, it's easy if this man accomplishes resurrection from the dead. I will don my hat and say thank you for any information you want to give me. I wasn't present at the time. Um, the world's a crazy place. I wasn't consulted, for example, about how a platypus could be ex existing or a rhinoceros. I don't, wasn't there. You didn't ask my advice on any of this. And the fact of the matter is that all of this authority of the Old Testament, is the stamp of approval is put by Jesus on that. And he puts his stamp of approval on the coming New Testament by giving the apostles, not Joseph Smith, not Mary Baker Eddy, not Muhammad, uh, on the apostles, the eyewitnesses of his resurrection, what's called in theology the gift of total recall. 
that he would give them and guide them into all the truth. They paid for it with their lives, and there's good authority that they got that story right. Okay, I left some time for questions. That was a lot to say and a lot to zip through. I apologize for zipping, zipping, um, but I highly recommend to you to start into a reading program. And when you want to know, you didn't ask this question, but your first question is, what should I read? In any area that interests you in the defense of the faith. If it's scientific areas, read in that and get some good sources to start reading in it. If it's history, we can direct you there. Maybe it's the literary apologists. It's reading Tolkien and Lewis, Dorothy Sayers, Chesterton. Some of these people that have been articulate defenders of the faith for a long time. Start reading something. And my final suggestion, how do I get started reading? This is a very sophisticated recommendation. Leave a book in the bathroom. Thank you very much. Now, let's take any questions that you have. That'll get you reading. That'll get you reading. Questions? Questions? I've got a question. Yes, please. I'm in a small firm, and we have, I'm, I'm a Catholic. We yeah. have um, Episcopalians, Lutherans, um, agnostics, um, yeah. atheists. Yeah. And so from time to time, after work, we'll go get a drink and discuss theology. Um, can you point me to a book to help me with this? Because I get this all the time, that this was all a fairy tale and that this story had been told before yes. many times. Yes, yes, constant I mean, myth. I mean, right. multiple times. Excellent. Or, or do you have any I do. for me? I do. I, the resource, there's a free catalog back there, a free, free, as people dive over one another to get to the free catalog. It is a, um, a, the best publisher on the defense of the faith is the Canadian Institute for Law, Theology, and Public Policy. And there is a book in there called History, Law, and Christianity by John Warwick Montgomery. Get that book and read it. That will answer your question definitively. The best single book, and it's short. It's short. Or, of course, come to Strasbourg. I think you need to. Um, where you will have many nights under the cathedral talking theology, apologetics, with many bottles of wine. Yes. And if you're a cigar smoker, you'll be even happier. No, I didn't say that. Okay, next question. You mentioned the 10th century manuscript of the Rasmussen. Yeah. Would you say a few words about the very early manuscripts, what languages they were in, what how reliable they are, what condition they were in? Right. The, the, um, the most number of ma uh, manuscripts we have, portions of the New Testament are Greek. 5,000 copies or fragments of Greek manuscripts relating to the New Testament alone. On top of that are another five to 8,000 Syriac and Latin versions of New Testament work. The numbers are approximately 15 to 20,000 copies or fragments of the New Testament that span the gap from uh, fragments that come from early part of the second century, about 100 to 110 A.D., a portion of chapter 8 of the book of John comes from that. The first full, complete copy of the New Testament, the whole thing, is not till 325 A.D. And you might think, that's 300 years. That's the whole thing. That's, that's the Gospels all the way through all the epistles. We have John, most of Luke. A number of the epistles come late part of the third century, but we have portions of books. We have citations to verses, thousands of citations in the church fathers. Um, I didn't go through this because I knew you'd be thrilled, 
but we have like 9,000 quotations from Scripture from Origen alone in the 3rd century, early part of the 3rd century. Best source for this, to read on this, is the Encyclopedia of Apologetics. I think it's... No, no, no. Is it called the Encyclopedia? I'll get it. I'll get it. It's Norman Geisler's book on the um, reliability of New Testament. I'll get it for you. I'll get it for you. Because, because I have to have it. I know I have it right here. Ah! Geisler's Encyclopedia of Apologetics, his article on dating of the New Testament. And I could give you all these numbers and it would thrill you. It would thrill you. There's 19,368 citations to the four Gospels just in the Church Fathers alone. Just in the Church Fathers. Justin Martyr from 100 to 165 AD has 268 different citations to the Gospels alone. Okay? These come in Greek, Syriac, Latin, um, different copies of the, of the New Testament. But if you want to do that work very carefully, Norman Geisler's done a terrific job on it. Yes, sir. What do you think is going on with folks like uh, Bart Ehrman and Marcus Borg and others with the uh, Jesus Seminar who come out of a, an alleged Christian background and yeah. have, in essence, uh, Sort of fan the flames and given right. sort of aid and comfort to the enemy in, in this process. Do you think it's just uh, their own rebellion against their own religious upbringing? Do they think they're just intellectually superior? Do they want to just uh, yeah just don't believe it? Or? I, I think they're they're honest about their questions and concerns. I don't take I don't approach it in trying to figure out psychologically where they're at. I just attack it as bad scholarship. Mm-hmm. I think that's the way to do it. I think it's to leave the situation as to a psychological explanation uh, to others. I think the reason I don't hold to higher criticism, for example, of the Bible is not because it would ruin my Sunday school teaching. I oppose it because it's bad scholarship. Not, Not because it just tears down the reliability of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, higher criticism being a, a, uh, a philosophical approach that because there's different, um, uh, ways of writing in various books that there's different editors and authors of each book. Because Paul's book of Galatians, one higher critic says, has four different writing styles in it. There's four different authors of it. Uh, that approach to literature is cancerous. And it's been found to be cancerous in other disciplines, Homeric studies and other areas of, of uh, scholarship. So I attack those as bad, bad scholarship. Shakespearean studies tried to do higher criticism. They almost lost the whole canon of Shakespeare doing this mess where people try to philosophize about who really wrote things. And with Bart Ehrman and Marcus Borg and some of the others, uh, we go after it and we try to show that uh, this stuff is not scholarship. This is philosophy masquerading as scholarship. This is people doing autobiography not scholarship. Letting the text cut us down wherever it will. And that's, I think, the mature way to deal with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It has a broadside to all of us about our condition. And you take it as it is. You don't impose on it uh, 21st century values because it seems to work better uh, for others. Uh, but there's others that have gone after the religious upbringing of Ehrman. I think we do disservice to our young people when we don't straight up talk about criticism of the scripture and whether it's reliable and how to defend it. Um, I can't 
argue enough for you. I've been trying this in the Lutheran church for a while. The Germans are very pig-headed. You have to hit them over the head with a two-by-four. I'm, I'm a convert to Reformation theology. I was brought up in a cult in California. Okay, Mary Baker Eddy and Christian Science is where I lived in. Um, but they uh, resist, the Lutherans resist doing anything in catechism class but Luther's small catechism. And I've tried to get them to see you ought to be doing apologetics in catechism class. Do it 7th, 8th grade, all the way through high school. Be teaching apologetics. Use some of the basic stuff in home. Um, if you're wondering what to have at home around the table, get R.C. Sproul's Reasons to Believe, the top ten objections people have to Christianity, and go through one night and just say, what, what if, you know, Johnny, what if this, somebody asked you this question? What would you say? And Sproul helps you through that basically. What I don't want you to get the impression is that this is somehow for academics and people that study and read a thousand books. Those are the only people that can do apologetics. Defense of the faith is biblically commanded, and 99.9% .9 of the questions you get have been answered already, and I can predict what the question is. And I've done this in universities all across the country. There's, it's not like somebody says, I finally got a question. No one can answer. How does a loving God allow evil? I bet that's going to throw you. There, that's never been asked before in the history of the church, ever. So know that people have asked these questions and that we have a responsibility to seriously give them answers. We try to do that um, in some of the books that we have back here for you to get a basic approach to dealing with the defense of the faith, but certainly get something like R.C. Sproul's Reasons to Believe um, and others that have answered those ten basic questions. You'll find that they repeat and they repeat and they repeat. So, it's 8.30. Uh, I'm happy to stay around, do whatever else uh, goes on after 8.30, but I think I'll stop now and thank you for your time. Oh, thank you. Thank you.